Good morning. How's everyone doing? Uh, well, we're in like the smack dab middle of this Advent series we're doing. We're calling it Advent because we're super creative. Um, but we're going to continue this uh, next week and then the following week, the 23rd, which we recognize like for most of us here, no one is really from L.A. Um, I, I, so all of you are going to kind of go back to your families, all that kind of stuff. Uh, if you are here on the 23rd, uh, we're going to do a really special, fun Christmas service where we'll do a lot of carols and we'll have food and uh, we'll keep it small and intimate uh, and it'll be a blast. So uh, do be here then. Uh, but our series will kind of culminate next week. Um, and on that actual 23rd, I'll do a brief just sort of Christmas morning sermon thing. Uh, but it'll culminate next week. And, and what I've been trying to do uh, is highlight characters in this Christmas story that don't always get the spotlight. So we have baby Jesus. That's the star of the show. But a lot of times we skip by Mary, Joseph, the Magi, uh, Herod, who's this big, dark, bad guy and all of that. Uh, and I've been trying to just shed light on those people. So we've been talking about the difference between light and dark and how Christmas is an end to darkness. It's a, it's a hopeful holiday. So what it means is light starts winning. And I said this about two weeks ago, but brief history lesson. Uh, when we brought Christianity north from uh, down near Israel and then up through uh, Rome and then up, 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 up into the northern European nations, they were already celebrating this thing called winter solstice. Because if you're in a farming community uh, and it's, it's like, you know, 2,000 years ago, uh, you're really, really, really dependent on sunlight. So when the sun starts to go away and the days get shorter, you start to get very, very nervous. And every year you go, I, there's no science, there's nothing to let me know that that sun is going to come back. So you start praying to whatever God you have to go, please bring back that sunlight because we need crops, we need food, we need to live. And so basically they clocked it to the point that they recognized that around the 25th of December was when the shortest day of the year was, but every day after that started getting a little bit more bright. So the beauty about Christmas is not that it's an end of the darkness right away, big light shines. It's that every day it gets a little brighter, and it gets a little brighter, and it gets a little brighter. And it's a yearly reminder for us to recognize that the light wins eventually. It's a slow roll, but the light will win. And so this morning, what I want to talk about um, is not necessarily a character, but we will, uh, we will be looking at a guy named Thomas who doesn't directly have to do with the Christmas story, but I think it weaves in very nicely. Um, but I'm going to talk about the greatest Christmas gift I ever had. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, ageism. That'll be fun. Uh, and then we're going to talk about this really weird story about a candle uh, that happened to Chelsea and I this week, which I'm very hesitant to share, but I think it's, I think it's pretty powerful. So uh, let me pray, and then we will jump into all of that. Lord God... Oh, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this community. Um, thank you for this church that, is, uh, that has just grown in such incredible ways over the last year. Uh, and as we jump into another Christmas season, Lord, um, I pray that you would just remind us of what that truly means. Um, that's you stepping into our history. Uh, that's you stepping into our history to save us and to fix what's going on in this world. Um, and like that light, it's, it's, a, it's a slow rolled out, and we are a part of that. So uh, we thank you for the space. We thank you for this time. Uh, don't let me mess up. Amen. All right. Um, so do you guys remember Christmas when you were, like, a little kid? Like, that feeling of, like, you'd wake up, and there's, there's presents, or maybe you didn't have presents. I'm really sorry. This could get touchy. But you wake up. 
Uh, and it, it's this beautiful sort of glow that just year after year kind of fades into non-existence. I'm going to tell a couple brief stories about my family members because they're not here and I can say whatever I want. So uh, my sister uh, is now third in command of all of the state of California. She works for the Gavin Newsom campaign, and then he put her as his like number three person. She is incredibly powerful. Every Christmas, she knows Santa's not real. Every Christmas, she will force my father to put the the gifts under the tree while we're asleep, so in the morning she can wake up and go, Santa's here. Now picture the third most powerful person in California still having to force that. If she ever runs for any public office, that's going right out there. Anyway, uh, but in our family, Christmas has always been a big deal. My dad grew up uh, in a really rural sort of uh, family, and there weren't a lot of presents, so he always tried his best to make it like the biggest blowout thing, even if it was like these gifts are from the 99 cent store. There were always a ton of boxes underneath the tree. And then we go around one by one. It takes like three hours as our family grows. It's so nerve wracking. But you, you take a gift and then you'll open it and everyone goes, ooh, ah, and you have to go like, yeah. And then you keep going around the circle uh, until everything is done. Um, but there was one Christmas in particular that lives in infamy in our household. Um, and it, it, it shows this sort of thing that I want to talk about, this light and this darkness, this twin idea that there are two paths. Christmas is about light. It's about joy, it's about everything, and then it's about darkness. There is a darkness that has to be beaten, right? So on this particular Christmas, my little brother uh, had wanted one gift all year long, all year long. Uh, it was kind of an odd pick, but he's about like three or four years old, uh, and he'd been watching Saturday morning cartoons, and this ad kept coming for this Winnie the Pooh playset that would open up, and in this ad, Winnie the Pooh would like stretch, he's out of the bed, he's walking to the sink, and then you've got like Owl, you know, like flipping over, uh, and this is what it looks like. Uh, and so Brendan, with great anticipation, is expecting everything to happen just like it happened in that ad. When he opens this toy thing, Pooh is going to stretch, Owl is going to fly in, Tigger is going to bounce through the thing, and he opens it up, and he opens the gift, and he goes, oh my gosh, here it is, and then he opens the box, and then he opens the thing, and great, everyone's watching, and he's like... <gasps> And then he just starts crying, like to know that because his expectation of that gift was ruined. Now, let's juxtapose that. I'm up next. I've gone through all my gifts. This is like classic sort of Christmas story thing. All my gifts. I had asked for one thing. I knew it wasn't going to happen. We didn't have a lot of money growing up. Uh, but the Nintendo 64 had just come out. And I was, I love video games to this day. I'm not ashamed to say it. And this was the beginning of my love. So I played at a Blockbuster, remember those? Um, and I, I wanted one so badly, and I would incessantly ask my parents, you know, that's the picture of me opening it there, uh, incessantly ask my parents for this gift. And they said, no, it's too much, Josh, we're not gonna get it. Uh, and so they hand me the gift, and I, I get to it, and I open it up, and it's the Nintendo 64, and I'm just, I'm screaming. This went on for like five minutes, and I don't know if you can see this, but I'm not wearing pants in this photo. May, may or may not. And then if you can see this, this is actually my little brother, and he's still crying. So his face is over there, but he's still crying. So that is the grand juxtaposition of Christmas. There is light, and there is dark. And that poor kid is probably still holding on to that darkness. But there is a certain point where that, that smiley little kid loses that luster. And it's, it's, not, it's not to the fault of anyone or anything. It's just kind of the way the world works. As you get older, you kind of begin to see behind that curtain. We, we see that dad's putting out the Christmas gifts. We see that all this sort of magical, mystical world that we truly believed in is a little more practical, a little more cold, and a little more just real. 
But there's a, there's a, a difference uh, between totally dropping our belief and actually coming back to it. So when you're a kid, there's sort of a naivete, right? You don't know. And what you don't know causes the world around you to look sort of magical. Like, things happen in weird ways. And you're like, that's just magic. Like, a, a computer is just magic. I remember the first time I touched, like, a touch screen. I was like, this is magic. Like, all of that stuff really looks like it's just it's, it's made by a wizard or something like that. And as we go on, we realize, no, it's all zeros and ones, and it's a little more practical and everything like that. But I truly believe that the Christian walk is going from naivete to what's called a second naivete. And Thomas Merton, if you guys have ever read any of him, he talks a lot about this, but a second naivete, which means we go from sort of magical, mystical view of God to a practical, I've got to prove this, certainty view of God. And then if we walk further along the path, and unfortunately people get stuck right here in the certainty, like I've got to prove that this is real and I'm going to do it scientifically and I'm going to do it mathematically. But if we can actually move further down the spiritual path, there's a beautiful place over here that is that second naivete, which is that maybe it is magical, maybe it is certain, but it's probably both. It's probably both. And this is what's called non-dual thinking. It's a way to say that it's not just black and white. There might be a whole lot of gray in here, and there might be black, and there might be white, and it's all true. It's all there. And if we can get to that point of second naivete, then our relationship with God becomes a whole lot different. We stop looking at it like a practical relationship, like a give and take, like if I pray this much, or if I do this thing, or if I do that, then God will bless me, or blah, 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 blah. And unfortunately, this is the reason so many people are walking away from church is because we, we present God like he's some sort of big like lottery machine in the sky or, or something that we have to earn or something like that. But it's not that at all. The second naivete, that to go that far is to say God may be in this place. He may be practical. He may be completely mystical, but he's probably both. He's probably both. And that's the whole point. Every single Christmas movie that you watch has to do with someone losing their belief in something and then finding it. Think of all Charlie Brown Christmas, uh, It's a Wonderful Life. Um, if you want to, I will be at the Aero Theater this afternoon to watch A Muppet Christmas Carol because it is the absolute classic of the season. Uh, but all of these, Christmas Carol, every single movie is about a person that has this set belief or this set life, something completely disrupts that, and then at the end, they regain their belief. But here's the thing that we always miss as we go through this. They don't come back to the same belief that they had before. In almost every single Christmas movie, in almost every single narrative, you just take any movie in general or any story that you've heard, when that hero goes on its journey and life is disrupted and they come back, they come back to the same place, but they're changed. If you ever read Lord of the Rings, I'm getting so nerdy right now. If you ever read Lord of the Rings, um, the journey of, of Frodo or Bilbo Baggins is to leave the Shire and they come back to the Shire, but they come back different. So the Shire has remained the same, but when they've gone on their hero's journey and they've come back, they are now changed. They are now different. Growing up is the whole point. It's the whole point of all Christianity. It's the whole point that Jesus is trying to get us to grow up. But in our society, we look at growing up like it's a problem. There's a huge issue with just ageism in our culture. There's this fear of becoming like an elder, which we need so much more of. The whole journey should be so that when we get to this point, we can be wise voices for others and help them along the path. We can show them where we've been marked, we can show them where we've been hurt, and we can help them through their pain, their suffering, their joys, everything. 
that should be the whole point. But a lot of us, and especially in this, like the, this, the cultural norm is, we're supposed to stay around 25 to 35 for the rest of our life. You want to look like that the rest of your life, you want to act like that the rest of your life. But the problem is, if we do that, we're going to be in a whole lot of trouble, right? I don't trust 25-year-olds, and I'm 30, <laughs> right? We have to grow up. That's the whole point. And part of growing up, guys, is, is going from a place of certainty of I've got this all mathematically proven to that second naivete, to let go of a little bit of our certainty, to let go of a little bit of our tradition, to then craft something that's even more beautiful that God has waiting for us on the other side. We have to remember that Christianity as a religion begins with a loss of faith. Let me explain that. Christianity as a religion begins with a loss of faith. And we know that because right after Jesus dies for these disciples, now let's, let's talk about the disciples. Disciples often get lumped into one sum category. We look at them like they walk around like as the 12, just all, all together all the time. Like they're just kind of like a, a, a crop of people. But they are all individuals. They all have their own story, just like all of us do in this room. Uh, and they all followed Jesus in a really unique and beautiful way. Uh, back in those ancient times, if you were a, a, a disciple of a rabbi, which is actually, it was a fairly common thing. Rabbis had just kind of crews. There were like, <laughs> you know, there's this rabbi over here and there's this rabbi over here. Each rabbi had what you called a yoke. So a yoke was its particular view of scripture, its teaching, its unique way. They used to look at the Bible or the Torah, the Tanakh, as this jewel, and you could twist it, and you could see it in beautiful ways every single way that you turned it, just much in the same as like scripture. You can go to the same line of scripture, and you can read it over and over again, and it has different fathoms of meaning every time you look at it. Uh, so what these rabbis would do is they would have a particular yoke. They'd be trained by other rabbis. They'd be given authority by two other rabbis, and they'd be sent out. And this is, this is like the teacher model. This is actually what the Pharisees like came up with. So you would you'd be moving along, and if you were a disciple of this rabbi, you would give up your entire life just to simply study your teacher so closely that when your teacher then decided, okay, it's time for you to then go with authority, you would be trained in the utmost. And that, that included this. They would actually have to watch the way that their teacher would walk, and they would have to mimic that walk. It was down to that level of a science. You had to know everything about what this rabbi was teaching. And so these disciples followed Jesus for about three years, just watching his every move, hanging on his every word. And the beautiful thing that's recorded in the scriptures is they ask so many questions. They get so much wrong, but they also get so much right. And, and they follow this guy because they truly believe, like, okay, this is it. This is my life. Now, get rid of all the messianic predictions, all of that kind of stuff aside. That's there. That's true. But think about this on a really practical level as a career path. These disciples have chosen, I'm going to give up my life to follow this person because I believe what they have is going to set my life on a trajectory, and I'm going to give everything I have towards this. I give up, in some cases, my relationship with my family. In some cases, my relationship with, with friends and, and, and my, my career before before this, and I'm going to follow him, and I'm going to watch him so closely. Now, they've done this, and then they get to the point where they begin to realize it takes them three years. It's amazing. Uh, but they begin to realize that, oh, this, this may be the Son of God, and that's a pretty big realization to have. They, they go, oh, this is even bigger than I thought it was before. Now my life is even more changed. 
now I'm, now I'm going to go out with even more fervor, and this is going to be, this is it. This is my life. Now, when Jesus is taken and he's put on a cross and he's crucified, that's on Friday. On Saturday, their entire worldview, their entire trajectory, their entire sort of career path, their entire love for this person, everything is destroyed. There's a complete loss because they don't understand. Like, none of this lines up. If we look in the scriptures and in all the predictions, none of this lines up. He's not supposed to die. He's supposed to win. So on Saturday, there's this profound loss. A loss so great that the inner circle almost never really recovers. There's a, there's a beautiful line, and I love the Bible records it. At the very end, when Jesus is ascending into heaven, it says, some looked and they believed and others did not. And why, if you're trying to sell someone on religion, would you put that in the Bible? <laughs> it makes no sense. It's terrible propaganda, right? It's, it's, it's saying that some people were there looking at a literally resurrected Christ, and then they went, yeah, it's not for me, and just walked on, right? That's how big this loss was. So when Jesus comes and he reveals himself, he reveals himself first to Mary, and then Mary comes back and she says, I've seen the living Christ, and then all of these dumb guys in a room are like, you didn't see anything. So they, 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 they deny her, they say, I, that can't be possible, and then Jesus passes through a locked door in a room that they're shut in because, again, they're like wanted fugitives at this point, and their whole life has gone to shambles, and he comes in and he says, peace be with you. And peace be with you is the standard greeting. So it's, a, it's akin to saying, like, what's up? Like, he, he just comes in and very casually just says, hello, peace be with you. And, and here's, the, here's the remarkable part. We talk about this guy named Thomas. And Thomas gets this, uh, this rap as doubting Thomas. And I have to imagine that the poor guy is up there in heaven going, like, I, I'm a disciple. I followed for three years. I doubted one time. <laughs> one time. And you guys won't stop talking about doubting Thomas. Uh, but and what's even funnier is Thomas is, is, is famous for saying, like, until I can, until I can put my hands uh, on his wounds and all that kind of stuff, uh, we look at him and we go, that guy has no faith. But the truth is, the first time that Jesus passes through that locked door, he does the exact same thing for every other disciple. They all touch his hands. They all put their hands in his side. They see his wounds or his marks. And so Thomas is just late to the party. So he shows up, and they're all going, we've seen him. We've seen him. And Thomas, like all of us, like any rational human being, goes, okay, I, but unless I see, and actually, this is, the, this is the scripture. We'll go, the Bible says it better than I do. Um, it says, now Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin. Now, here's the crazy part, called the twin. So why is John, who has very little space here to write, John is a very short gospel, why is John letting us know that he's also called the twin? It might be because it's a clue that in this story that we're about to read, there may be two ways of viewing something. There may be two sides of the story. There may be two different ways. And maybe, maybe both are true. So it's called the twin was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, and place my finger in the mark of the nails, and place my hands on his side, I will never believe. We can just pause right there on this. So at the very core of this is a loss of that magic, a loss of that mystery. He's in a space now where he's like, I no longer, he's seen Jesus do incredible things on that three-year journey, incredible things. But now Thomas has gone to this sort of cold, rational place where he's like, unless I can prove this, 
as rationally as possible, I will never believe. Never. So he trusts these people. He's been traveling with them. These are like close as family, and they're saying to him, no, seriously, it's real, it's true, and they're celebrating, and he just can't come around on it. He can't. But honestly, guys, that's all of us, right? No, no one in here would be smart if you were just like, yep, yeah, yep, 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 sounds good, true. When you lost someone that was so close to you. And here's a really another beautiful thing, um, in this translation especially. Uh, the use here in every other translation, but the, the Greek that it's actually from is really closer to Mark. So in a lot of the other translations, you'll read, place my finger into the wounds. Um, but actually, the more careful and caring translation is Mark. When I place my hands on the mark. This is a twin thing. There's a duality to this. There's a way that we could read this that says, unless I place my hand in his wounds, which is his hurts, the things that have not healed, the things that will never heal, then I will never believe. Or there's a way of saying marked, which means they're healed, and they're intentional, and they're real, and we can learn from them. The care that John takes to place that word mark instead of wound is to show us that we can either be wounded by something or we can be marked by something. It's a way of saying, what can you do with your pain? When the most intense tragedy comes your way, you can be wounded by it or you can be marked by it. By saying marked, it's saying, no, 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 now I can help you with this pain. See, look where I hurt. Look what I went through. I can now use that to help you. It's enormously caring. And unfortunately, it's just thrown in there and we pass it by all too quickly. Uh, I will never believe. So we can go to the next slide there. Eight days later. So seven is a number of biblical completion. So this is saying like complete and then one. <laughs> Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them, although the doors were locked. Again, same scenario. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands. Put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Tom, Thomas answered him, My Lord, my God. Jesus, without hesitation or judgment, offers his hands and his side, offers his marks. He's not saying, Thomas, you're an idiot. He's saying, No, Thomas, come here. Look, look what I went through. Look what I've done for you. And then Thomas proclaims, my Lord and my God. So really, we can't call him Doubting Thomas. We must call him something else. <laughs> my Lord, my God. Jesus is not trying to prove anything to Thomas. He doesn't sit him down and say, okay, so here's how it worked. I died, then God can't. He's not giving like a play-by-play -play here. He's not giving him proof. All he's doing is letting Thomas reach out and touch him. He's not providing proof. He's providing a miracle. He's providing healing. If you roll through all of the miracles of Jesus, even all of the miracles of the Old Testament, you'll find that every single miracle, including water to wine, maybe especially water to wine, is to bring healing and to bring more life. Whenever you see a miracle, Jesus is giving dignity back, giving someone back their lives and with Thomas, he's doing the same thing. He's giving Thomas his life back by saying, look, here are my marks. Come touch my hands. Come touch my side. 
He's providing him with a miracle. So what I want to do is I want to go through a story, another scripture. Uh, it's a little bit lengthy, but we'll read it together. Um, and there's two miracle accounts jam-packed in this one story. Uh, and I think this actually uh, is the greatest message of Christmas that you could ever do, but I'll get to that later. Um, so it says, uh, when Jesus had again crossed over by boat. And this is in the book of Mark. Uh, and Mark just has, if you read the Gospel of Mark, it's the first Gospel written. I'm fascinated with it because it's the first one. So like, that's the one that I kind of go to and study the most. But in Mark, you'll see it's, every Gospel is sort of like a road trip story. Um, but in Mark especially, there's this, this theme of Jesus going back and forth over this lake. So whenever you see he's crossed over, it either means he's on the Gentile side or he's on the Jewish side. He's, he's gone to the people that, like, by all Jewish custom and law at that time, should not have this message, and then he's gone to his own people. And at this point, he's crossed over to the side of the Jewish people. So he's on, he's on his home turf here. Uh, it says, when he crossed over the boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Uh, then one of the synagogue leaders named Jarius. Now, here's the thing. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. It might be Jarius. Who knows? Um, but in Mark's gospel... Most of the characters, most every encounter that Jesus comes upon, most of them are not given a name. They're not given a name. And there's sort of an indignity to that. Like, it's, it's not clear why, but this instance, this synagogue leader, who would have been a very wealthy member of the community, a very like, upstanding, he would have been like one of the leaders of the entire community because he's the leader of the synagogue. He wouldn't have been like a priest. He would have been like, like I mean, you know, head of the elder board or whatever it is. He would have been like the guy uh, in their community, and he's named. Like, like the, the gospel chooses to name him outright Why? Be because he's important, right? Because he's, a, he's an important member of this community, so he gets to be named. Now, hold on to that. Uh, he came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet, and that's important because this man of high esteem would never level himself to anyone, especially this sort of rogue rabbi who's on the road, right? Uh, but he, he does it anyway. He, he humbles himself. He takes away all that honor, and he, he bows down before Jesus, and he pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed. And pay attention to that. Put your hands on her so she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. So like we talked about two weeks ago, Jesus has just popped off the boat here. It, every time he pops off the boat, there's either a demoniac running at him or there's this the high-esteemed like, head of the synagogue bowing before him. There's never a dull moment here. Every time you pop off the boat, there's some sort of character running at you. So he's, he's on a mission, though. Like, he's got a plan. He's going to go somewhere. And like I talked about the other week, this is another interruption. Jesus is being outright interrupted, but he doesn't do anything doesn't complain, doesn't say, hey, I, I have to be over here. Maybe I can do that at 3 p.m. today, but I've got this other thing. No, he says, I'll go with you. It just says, so Jesus went with him. Uh, next slide, please. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. Now, we, again, you, you have to kind of just like pause every line here because all of this is so much detail. It's such a beautiful story. But basically, picture just a large, unruly crowd. Especially in the Gospel of Mark, whenever Mark is talking about a crowd, he's talking about common people. Common people are in the crowd. The crowd doesn't get a name, right? Jarius or Harius or Hyrus, whatever you pronounce it, he gets a name. But the crowd is just the crowd. It's just a mob of common people. And there's a huge, a large crowd that's now following Jesus, and it's just sort of a mob scene. Jesus is just out in front, and then there's just this huge crowd behind him 
pressing up at him, trying to get to him, and they're walking with this leader of the synagogue, and everyone knows, oh, this is an important man, this is an important mission, and we're all going to follow, and we're going to see what Jesus can do, because we've heard legend of this, this is going to be incredible. Let's all follow him to this house. And when you're following on narrow streets and Galilee, that kind of thing, it's going to be really like tepsy-turvy, and everyone's going to be bumping up against each other. Uh, and it says, and a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. Now, woman does not get a name. Jairus has a name. Large, important synagogue leader gets a name. But this woman is unnamed, and it just says she's been bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all the money she had. Now, we all know this, but medical care back then was just sort of more like, it was, it's that kind of first naivete. It's like magic. They'd like bleed people out. There's leeches. You know, it's not, it's not a science. And she had, she had squandered all of her savings, all of the money that she'd ever made, trying to get well to no avail, probably being taken advantage of in many cases. Uh, and spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately her bleeding stopped and she felt in her body that she was freed from suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him and he turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? Now, as the disciples point out, uh, you see the crowding, people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you ask, who touched me? Really, they're going like, seriously? This is a crowd and, and you're not seeing this? Because everyone is touching you. Like, there, there's, everyone is crowding and pushing and pulling and all of that kind of stuff, but Jesus knows, no, 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 no. Something just happened that's different, and he turns around, and he faces the crowd, the unnamed crowd. He goes, who touched me? Uh, Jesus looked at, yeah, but Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, trembling with fear, told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Now, No, no, I'm sorry. You can stay there. Sorry, Bobby. My bad. I just paused for dramatic effect, and it, it, it caused you to go. Uh, if this woman who is bleeding, that would make you ritually impure, um, which this is sort of a slap of hand on the wrist, but it would make you impure for an entire day. And what that means is that if she made Jesus ritually impure and she knows he's on this mission with the head of the synagogue to go and touch, to put hands on the daughter, that Jesus would be ritually impure and if he touched her, he would be unable to perform the miracle. He would not be able to reach out his hand and touch her. And so this unnamed woman in the crowd who'd been suffering for years has to come forth and she's trembling because she knows like this crowd could turn on me Everyone could turn on me. He could turn on me. I've just ruined this entire mission. I've ruined everyone's day. And instead, Jesus does something absolutely Jesus of him. And he turns around and he says, daughter, your faith has healed you. Now, that unnamed woman is given a name. And it's a daughter. Jesus takes an unnamed person out of the crowd and gives them a name, and now it's daughter. It's not Jairus, Jairus, whatever you want to say. It's daughter. The crowd 
would have been stunned. Like, what? And so the story goes on. It's too long to read, but here's what happens. They go from there, and, and right as this is happening, it says, as he was still speaking, someone comes to Jarius and he says, your daughter, she's, she's passed. Stop bothering the teacher. And imagine this moment. His father is just like, And he starts like the low, slow walk in shock back home. And Jesus just looks at him and he goes, no, don't worry about it. Come with me. I think we have, do we have one more slide? It says, yeah. He's, no, no, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Go back. Yeah. Jesus told him, don't be afraid. Just believe. Now what he's calling this leader of the synagogue into is to follow the example of the daughter from the crowd. There are two daughters in this story. Two there's the one that's sick, and then there's the one that's named by Jesus. And now Jesus is using that unnamed woman as the archetype for the bravery that this man needs to muster to go home to his child. Not only has this woman been named daughter, but now he's telling the leader of the synagogue, you need to be more like her. And so they walk, and they go to the home, and there's wailers, which is you would have to hire at least two wailers for any funeral back then, and those were just professional people that were just going like, ah, <laughs> it's a great job to have. Anyway, they're, they're screaming. There's, it's, a, it's a definite funeral. Someone has died here. So Jesus enters the room, forces everyone to get out. He says, she's not dead. She's just sleeping. And the, the scripture says they literally laughed him out. They were just like, no, no that's ridiculous. And it gets to the point where he has to kick everyone out. He's like, that's it. Everyone out. Everyone out besides the parents. You stay here. And then he goes to the child, remember, ritually unpure. And here's the ripple of the story that's so incredible. There, there are more than one ways. <laughs> there are more than like a 200, read the book of Deuteronomy or Leviticus, to be ritually impure. And another one of them, we've talked about this with the Good Samaritan, is to touch a dead body. So we have a ritually impure Jesus who's been touched touching a dead body. This is double ritually impure. And he says something so, so profound. And I can't remember because it's in Aramaic, but I think we have that slide. Can we go a little bit further? Uh, oh, yeah. Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. And immediately the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. Now, how long had the other daughter been suffering from bleeding? 12 years. At this, they were completely astonished, and downright they should be. <laughs> Jesus moves past the purity laws, the boundaries, everything to get to us. And if that's not what Christmas is about, I don't know what Christmas is about. It's about God breaking through an impure, broken, crazy world and coming in the most vulnerable state possible for us, to break through all the rules, all the regulations, to get to us. That's a true miracle. Because every single miracle that Jesus performs is to bring more life. Now, unfortunately, I have to tell you a really crazy story. So uh, last week, uh, as, as a lot of, well, two weeks ago, it's been a blur. As a lot of you know, uh, Chelsea and I lost our, our little baby. Um, and, uh, and we, we, like I said two weeks ago, there's still good news. Like, we didn't want to, like, just sort of, like, muck around and cry and, and mope. That's all good, and, and, and we did do a lot of that, trust me. And a lot of drinking, I'm just going to be honest with you. Anyway, uh, 
we, we decided we, we, this isn't a, this isn't a, it's not a devastation, this is a celebration. Like this little life has gone on and, and it's, it's, it's watching over us, it's in heaven. Um, and so we decided, let's, do, let's just throw it, let's throw it like a birthday party. And, and we'll, we'll just celebrate the life uh, this little one was and is. Um, and so we got a cookie, we, it was makeshift, this is like, like back of my mind, we're, we're both crying, I'm like, I gotta do something. And I find, a, I find a birthday candle and I find a cookie because we've got tons of cookies right now, thank you people. Anyway, so I find a cookie and I put the candle in the cookie and I run over and I go, okay, we're gonna sing happy birthday and I light the candle uh, and we sang happy birthday and the candle just stayed lit. And it, this is where this gets so weird, I hate that I have to tell the story. Please take this for wherever you want. But it's, it, describing a miracle is sort of like describing a dream. No one really wants to hear about it. Anyway, so I, we're there, and the candle stays just lit. I'm like, what's going on? The song is ending. This is the point where you're supposed to panic because it's dripping down. It's going to ruin your cookie. It was just there. And another ripple of the story that I forgot to say is, is our baby, uh, it, it, it was so uh, deformed. It was just like, it was, it was like the... the person at the ultrasound was like, I've never seen anything like this. It's about as rare as being struck by the lightning. But the one thing that it always had was a really ridiculously strong heartbeat. <laughs> like, it was like, I've never, it's just going. So I'm thinking about that heartbeat, and I'm thinking about this candle, and this candle's just sitting there, and I'm like, don't do this to me. I don't want to have to tell this in church. And anyway, it's just sitting there. And then we say, okay, well, well let's just wait, and let's wait for it to die out, and then we'll, we'll blow it out, and, and, uh, and we'll, we'll pray together. So we wait, and it, it does go down. It's not as miraculous as I'm saying. And it goes down. Um, and then we blow it out. And then I turn, because the cookie is ruined. It's just wax all over it. So we'll go get another cookie. Plenty of them. I turn, and the candle's out. And I turn, and I get to here, and the candle goes back up. And I go, holy shit. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I stand there, and I go, no, 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 no. Uh, and, and we come back. Uh, and we pray, and the candle stays lit as long as we pray, and then we stop praying, and we blow it out, and it stays out. Now, guys, there are two ways to see a story, right? And I love that story. I think that's beautiful. However, upon further inspection, it's very possible that that was one of those candles that you blow out, and it's a trick candle, <laughs> and it comes out, right? So I love that there's this deep miracle story that I can all tell you, and then I love the fact that there's a practical, rational explanation, but I'm gonna tell you this. That is still a miracle. Why? Because it brought us more life. Because it pulled us further into a greater reality, a greater truth. And I don't care if it's a trick candle, and I don't care if it's a real candle, and I don't care if it's fake or if it's true. I just believe. I just believe that in that moment, God wanted to give us a little more life. And I think that's the whole Christmas story. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much for, um, for being near to us, for, for your comfort, for your love, uh, for this holiday that's a reminder that you are, you are God with us, Emmanuel. You are closer than our very breath. So I, I just pray for healing in this space. I pray for joy. I pray for uh, just an outpouring of your love. May we become more like you. We love you. Amen.